The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Today's episode is all about the impact of COVID-19 on the most vulnerable members of our society, children. I've been doing a lot of thinking over the past few weeks of this crisis, specifically about how this will affect children globally. Children are our most vulnerable members of society in regular times, and we know that in a crisis, they become even more so. My work in international child protection means that I've traveled to many places where children's lives are at risk every single day whether that be from abuse, exploitation, or violence, or from things like malnutrition or preventable diseases. In late 2018, I traveled to Cox's Bazaar refugee camp, the largest refugee camp in the world, with around 1 million Rohingya who fled from neighboring Myanmar. I'd never seen anything like it. Living conditions were shocking, and the stories we heard from the children we were doing research with were heartbreaking. Thinking about COVID-19 reaching Cox's Bazaar and other places like it is truly a terrifying thought. It will be unstoppable. I've also been thinking a lot about all the programs globally that aim to improve protection for vulnerable children and how, with restrictions on movement, work and access, monitoring of these children cannot take place. This pandemic will not only disproportionately affect the most vulnerable, but the impact of it on children's well-being and development will be felt for years to come. To unpack this further, my guest today is Matt Tinkler, Director of Policy, Public Affairs and International Programs at Save the Children Australia. I've known Matt for a few years now through my work with Save the Children on the Rethink Orphanages campaign. Matt holds dual responsibility for delivering international programs across the Asia-Pacific region and ensuring that Save the Children is a strong voice for vulnerable children with government policymakers and in the media. Prior to his role at Save the Children, Matt has worked as a chief of staff to a senior cabinet minister in the Australian federal government, overseeing a diverse range of portfolios. Matt was also acting executive director at the Public Law Clearinghouse, an organisation that focuses on providing legal services to the most disadvantaged Australians, and began his career as a corporate lawyer at Minter Allison. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Matt. Hi, Lee. Thanks for having me. First off, I want to ask you a question I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? Yeah, for me, uh, doing good is trying to make the world a slightly better place than if you weren't there. And that's been a thread that has really run through most of my professional career, be it through government or policy or service delivery uh, or advocacy, where by particularly working for those who are less fortunate than you, you can try and improve things for them and make a bit of a difference in the world. And I feel very lucky that working at Save the Children, I feel like I, I get to make a difference every single day. 
Absolutely. And do you think that that thread of doing good runs through your whole life and how you express that daily? Or is it something that you kind of restrict to work? No, I think it's a bit of a thread through family as well, although it probably took me a while to realise that um, and mature in some ways. As a, I grew up in a household with parents, both who were teachers. My dad was the principal of the local primary school. And I think it took me a while to realise that that was a very noble profession where they were doing good and part of their community in a really you know, respected way. And my career, I started out as a commercial lawyer, but I tended to gravitate towards things that I felt like uh, where I could make a difference. And then I think as you become a parent, I've got three kids now, you become acutely aware around your own behaviours and values that you're modelling for your children. So yeah, I think doing good becomes a bit of a guiding philosophy for life in many ways, not just work. Absolutely. So Matt, we're in the middle of a pandemic and your role at Save the Children, I imagine, is pretty busy right now. How is Save the Children responding to COVID-19 and and what's happening for you guys internally? Yeah, it's been a really busy and interesting time. There's probably two main components to this. One is operationally, what does it mean for me as an executive in a large uh, charity when our fundraising base has been significantly hit by the economic impacts of COVID? So retail stores, shops closing down, public fundraising really contracting as people are less inclined to give when they're in economic uncertainty. Uh, and of course, the operational impacts of a large workforce, making sure that you know, staff are set up to work from home, that we have business continuity and planning, that we have all the right you know, cloud facilities for our internet and those kind of things. So one part is being part of that executive leadership team and managing the organisational impacts. And the other part is really trying to lead our programming response to COVID. And there's probably two subsets of that as well. One is all the existing programs we do are impacted in some way by COVID. A lot of our work is in education and schools. So schools are shut down in many countries around the world. So those programs have to pause or adapt. This is a crisis, a humanitarian crisis, really, in the same way as we respond to crises all around the world for the last 100 years. So a part of our our response is gearing up the organisation to respond specifically to COVID in communities around the world. So through either emergency health preparedness and response or through education uh, continuity or indeed through protecting children, child protection concerns can be exacerbated in this kind of crisis. So dealing with all that on top of the normal kind of day-to-day, I guess, makes it a really challenging and busy period. But I've been really proud to be in an organisation like Save the Children at this time as well. One of those threads I want to pick up on more around what it means for child protection and, and how the risks have increased for children through this time. Yeah, it's a massive thing for child protection and the way we talk about it is um, in the nature of having eyes on the child and that means that normally when a, a child, a particularly a vulnerable child, is in a routine in their normal daily lives, they have protective factors that support their well-being. So going to school and having teachers and other carers supporting them, uh, maybe participating in youth clubs, spending time outside the family home, we know that a lot of violence happens to children in the home and therefore if they spend more time in the home that uh, potential for violence can increase. So it's really a, an important time for us to maintain that eyes on the child, make sure that uh, there's ways we can communicate, protect and engage with children and listen to them importantly 
as their lives change, um, like all of our lives have changed at the moment. And what does that mean in practice, though? How do we keep eyes on the child when the child's in the home and there's restrictions on movement? Yeah, a lot of our staff, either here or overseas, are adapting our normal programming to try and support children either remotely or through minimal amount of face-to-face contact. So in Australia, for example, we run uh, a thing called Play to Learn, which is an early child education uh, program where children in- engage with their parents in play-based learning. And we have supporting staff wrapped around that to engage with children and provide additional support if needed. Uh, in some remote communities, for example, we've trained up a number of our Indigenous workforce in those communities to work with parents on how to engage online with a play-to-learn model. And those support workers are checking in on families every day or every week or however often we can to make sure that their well-being is being looked after. It's not easy, though. It's hard. I know many schools are now adapting to have online check-ins with teachers and with classes every day or every week. And part of that, just looking at my own kids' practices this week, is kids reporting to teachers how they're feeling about learning from home. Are they feeling happy, sad, angry, confused? What's going on for them? So it's those kind of things where you maintain those normal check-ins that teachers will do as a matter of course, but now they're doing it remotely via an iPad. And that definitely works, I guess, here in Australia for your family, for mine. Uh, There's certainly families in Australia that don't have that access. But what about these kids overseas where we're already struggling to get them into school in the first place? There's already you know, pretty serious child protection concerns in some of those families. How do we look at keeping eyes on the child? I've been thinking about this myself and I'm kind of struggling to come to an answer as well. It's hard to come to an answer because it's a really complicated problem. And, you know, we operate in crises all around the world and we always ask children uh, what do they miss or need most when they're in a crisis situation. And almost always, one of their top responses is, I want to go back to school. It just shows that kids value an education and they want to learn, they want to be around their friends. And we also know that when we miss out, if kids miss out on school for a sustained period, we might lose them from the school system forever. And they'll engage in in work or be more vulnerable to exploitation and abuse, those kind of things. So it's really hard. There are ways to maintain kids' engagement in school in this kind of climate through things like radio instruction through sending school packs to families and working with parents to make sure that they can effectively homeschool their kids through e-learning where it's appropriate and you can have offline e-learning rather than online e-learning and those kind of things. Those are the sort of things that we're trying to maintain an engagement in, in learning for kids all around the world. I've also been thinking about places like Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh or Al Hal in Syria. These places are unimaginable. We have huge numbers of traumatized, undernourished, marginalized people that have been through, you know, situations that are increasingly difficult for them to manage. They're crammed into flimsy shelters. They're reliant on already insufficient public sanitation facilities. You know, many people don't have enough water to drink in normal normal times, let alone having soap and water to wash their hands regularly. I've been to Cox's Bazaar and the thought of COVID-19 taking hold there is actually quite terrifying to imagine. What does this mean for places like that? Yeah, I think all of us in the humanitarian world are, are waiting uh, nervously for what 
at the moment is a trickle of cases we're seeing in some developing countries, but that really could become a tsunami of cases very quickly. And a place like Cox's Bazaar is one of the most vulnerable on earth. It's already one of the hardest places to be a child. Um, you've seen it. People are living you know, cheek by jowl in, in bamboo and, and black plastic tents, basically often six, eight or ten people to a room with a dirt floor and, and no running water, um, those kind of things. So the risk of infection spreading and, and taking hold in that environment is, is significant. Aid agencies like Save the Children are trying to mobilise and set up ICU facilities effectively, those kind of things, in a setting like Cox's Bazaar. But it's not just a refugee camp. If you take somewhere like Papua New Guinea, which is only four kilometres away from Australia's most northern point, you know, most families still live in a village setting in PNG and most of the infrastructure is pretty basic and it's a very communal style of living where people work together and eat together, pray together and live in close proximity. So, you know, some of these villages might be isolated enough that, that something like coronavirus might not hit, but if it does, the risk of it taking hold is really significant there as well. Yeah, I mean, it seems that social distancing as a concept is inherently privileged. You, you can't social distance in a refugee camp or indeed a village. That's spot on. It's easy for us, I think, despite the hardships we have with homeschooling and and all that kind of thing. But it's easy for us to be able to isolate in a in a house with you know bathrooms and bedrooms and and separate living spaces and those kind of things. Not so easy when you live in a village in a in a hut or a tent in a refugee camp. Mm-hmm. I saw in the media today an article that you actually tweeted that there have been cases in Al-Hal in Syria. Is that right? There's a case in a town called Kamishli, which is just north of Al-Hal on the Turkish border. So there hasn't been a confirmed case in the Al-Hal camp yet, but they're also not testing in the camp. So who knows, I guess, if there is a case there or not. Northeast Syria is one of the most fragile settings on earth. It's been at war for a decade now. It's a disputed territory. There's a lot of vulnerable people living in refugee camps. Already in a place like El Hole, access to medical support was virtually non-existent for you know the women and families trapped there. There's 47 kids under five in that camp, Aussie kids under five in that camp. So it's a desperate situation. And if we can't get adequate health care into that camp, then I really am desperately concerned for the health and well-being of those women and families who are trapped there. And what is SAVE advocating for with Alhol? Well, with Alhol, particularly for the Australian women and children who've been trapped there, we've been advocating for them to be repatriated back to Australia. And there's no legal or practical barrier in our view for that to occur. They're Australian citizens. As I said, most of the Australian residents are children under five. They haven't done anything wrong, even though many Australians have concerns about the acts of their parents for either taking them to a war zone or they may have been affiliated with the ISIS ideology and that's understandable. But for kids, you know, they're always innocent and they shouldn't be punished for the the crimes of their parents. And it's within the capacity of Australia to repatriate them in a way that ensures their safety but also the safety of Australians with appropriate, you know, counterterrorism measures put in place to make sure that they are monitored and and not a threat to the Australian community. COVID has complicated that, of course, with the ban on international flights and travel. But I think the point is they had a year to repatriate them before COVID hit and there was no action. So now they're even in a more vulnerable situation than beforehand. So this pandemic is unprecedented in that for the first time in modern history, it's something that's indiscriminately impacting people from all walks of life in every country across the world. It's not 
a contained emergency where we usually would see one unaffected country mobilized to support the affected countries, such as how we would normally respond to Cyclone Harold, which hit the Pacific last week. And, you know, we're seeing pictures coming out and reports coming out of the extent of that devastation. Normally, you know, Australia would be sending people, money and resources over, and that would have happened within days. I did see that there was a military delivery of aid from Australia by the Defence Force. Is it restricted to that or are we assisting through Save the Children, for example, in other ways? It's a really interesting discussion, really, responding to Cyclone Herald. In fact, just before this interview, I was on a call with my humanitarian director about trying to negotiate more space on the Defence Force flight that's going into Vanuatu in the next couple of days to get more supplies to our team on the ground. So, yes, some supplies are getting through, but it's very limited because airspace is limited and that makes it really hard to respond. Our supplies will run out this week if we don't get more. You know, even though we do a lot of what we'd say soft uh, interventions through child protection, education, support, it's no good turning up to a community in Santo whose house has been destroyed if you don't have the basics, you know, water and uh, hygiene kits and those kind of things. It's pretty difficult. But the other aspect of this is that localised responses are the way of the future in humanitarianism. And our whole way of working needs to shift to empowering local country and their workforce and their governments to respond and meet their own needs. That's what true development is all about. Absolutely. And it's interesting, after Cyclone Pam that struck in 2015, there was a lot of criticism over time of uh, aid agencies rushing in and responding in an inappropriate way. They didn't have a footprint or a local workforce. They weren't coordinating with the local disaster management office. And the government of Vanuatu pushed back really hard and said, we want to control the response to our own people, which is fair enough. And they've done the same thing here. And even though there theoretically would be an ability to get humanitarian staff into Vanuatu through a sort of humanitarian corridor, we're calling it, the government of Vanuatu has said, we don't have a COVID case in the country at the moment. We don't want to increase that risk. We want to manage this response ourselves. So by all means, help us and your supplies and get your national teams working on this, but you don't need to inundate us with expatriate staff. And we do have a large and very capable workforce in Vanuatu. They've been responding to, you know, Vanuatu is the most disaster-prone country in the world. So this is a, a way of life almost for them responding to emergency, be it a volcano eruption on Anbai or tropical cyclones. So we need to support them and rely on them to deliver the kind of need that children require in Vanuatu at the moment. Absolutely. And I think that is something that, you know, is one of the, if you can say it, silver linings of this disaster occurring in the middle of this pandemic is that we will be seeing more localization of response through force. And many of these places may not be at the place that you know, we might want them to be in terms of being able to respond at that level, but it's going to push that process along much quicker. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I mean, for all of us in, for all of us in most contexts, we are being pushed towards a remote way of working, whether we like it or not. And what coronavirus has done is just put that on steroids for us and make us do it more quickly than we otherwise would. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. As you say, it does support a more localised response. You know, we're talking to our, our country director every day about what his needs are and how we can support. There is some frustration that with a bit of extra person power on the ground, they would be able to do more and alleviate some of the workload. But 
by and large, there's also a lot of faith in our national workforce to, to get on and do that job. So I've also been thinking a lot about how in a time of crisis, there tends to be a natural shift towards a more localized response in terms of giving. And you mentioned this at the start, you talked about how your supporter base or your financial response has been limited because you've had to close op shops and storefronts and other forms of access to money. We saw this also with the bushfires earlier this year here in Australia with more money donated from within Australia within a very short period of time than has been donated to overseas humanitarian emergencies or disasters of a similar magnitude. I would say it's a pretty pretty natural response to shift our focus inwards to our communities, to ourselves and our families. What does it mean though for countries that are reliant on aid when those traditional sources of support have been hit? So the stock market's been hit, which means that, you know, those forms of large donations from philanthropic entities might've been affected. What are we going to see in the future around the ability to provide the same or increased level of support that will be needed? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think you're right that uh, there is a notion that charity starts at home. And often that is the case. It starts at home. From my perspective, it shouldn't end there. And I don't think there's a any reason other than that proximity is king in these things. And I used to work in, in federal politics. And I know from a federal politician's perspective, for example, you can go and see in your electorate pretty much every area of Commonwealth expenditure, be it education or health or infrastructure or the tax office or what have you, but you can't go and see foreign aid being spent unless you go to Papua New Guinea. Uh, it's basically your nearest point. So what we've done in the past is is invest a lot of time in delegations to get politicians to visit aid programs because of that belief that proximity is king. If, if you have a proximate experience of poverty and and need in somewhere like PNG and the difference aid can make, then you are more likely to say, that's important, I'll support it. In the same way, you're more likely to support a, a cancer charity if your your friend or family member has leukaemia and you've been through that really difficult scenario yourself. So that's a real challenge for us in a COVID environment where there is such dramatic need in a place like Australia that people tend to look more inwards and support things closer to home in that environment. By the same token, I think what's going to be interesting with coronavirus is this notion that we're, we're all in it together. You know, there was the Global Citizen concert over the weekend that tried to make this point. I think that it doesn't matter if you're in, in London, New York or Melbourne or, or Sierra Leone or Papua New Guinea, that coronavirus is threatening us all. And, you know, just maybe there is something that having this proximate experience of coronavirus here in Australia might make people understand that when it does hit a refugee camp or PNG that how desperate it must be there given their living conditions and lack of resources and that might uh, spur some you know more altruistic thinking and, and public giving so we'll see it's too it's, a, it's probably too early to tell there's been some encouraging responses from a lot of the big global donors so far to say we're going to open up rapid funding responses to ensure continuity for education for example but by the same token you know the federal government's budget is in complete and utter turmoil, you know, once in a generation turmoil. So will the $4 billion development budget survive next year in that climate? Who knows, really? I hope so. Um, I hope people value what that budget provides for our, you know, regional stability, security, and also the well-being of our neighbours. But 
I think all bets are off at this stage on those kind of things. So it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, and I think the scary thing about that is it's not just one country where all bets are off. You know, we we might see all donor countries seriously cut their level of aid. And that itself is is very, very concerning. I've been thinking about what this means for the SDGs. Uh, it seems, and I, you know, I don't want to be negative about it, but it seems like meeting those targets is going to be that much harder now. It's really sad. And our, the CEO of our UK um, wrote in an email the other day that the, the SDGs will become a total irrelevance if um, COVID isn't halted in developing countries. And I think he's right. You know, we, we as an organisation have worked for 100 years around what we call our breakthroughs in education, child protection and survival, health and survival. And it's just so sad to think that all of that work and all the gains and progress we've made could literally be wiped out in a matter of months if this disease takes hold and there isn't appropriate mitigations put in place. That is why it's so critical that the governments continue to support globalism, aid and development. I think the other thing is, you know, if COVID is anywhere, we're all still at risk, right? Because we're in a globalised world and economy, that it's all in all of our interest to make sure that it's suppressed and eradicated wherever uh, the virus strikes. So, you know, one of the things I've been worried about before this was the Australian government's capacity to replenish the big multilateral funds like Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, or the Global Fund to fight uh, TB and malaria and AIDS. But they are the very sort of funds that need our support at this time. They're delivering you know, vital support, first frontline health support to families and children all around the world. But it's that kind of replenishment that might come under political pressure when the budget is in such difficulty because what the government has had to do to respond to COVID here. It makes you wonder if, you know, if indeed the SDGs become irrelevant, as you say, what replaces them? You know, it's it's an entirely new landscape and something that we obviously didn't see coming or take seriously enough the threat of what it might do to, you know, the economies of all nations, but let alone trying to meet those development targets. It's going to be a real opener for people. And one hope I have, I think, is that people will see the value in strong health systems. And in development, well, we bang on about things like health system strengthening all the time. And it sounds really boring. And it's People want to understand their money's, you know, meeting an acute need and, and saving a life. And that, that is critical, obviously. But health system strengthening is all about making sure that uh, countries have a system with the resilience and capacity to respond to this very kind of thing. And, you know, I think we've seen in Australia that our system has responded pretty well, but we've got one of the best health systems in the world where countries like the US and the UK and Spain and Italy and that, those sophisticated health systems struggle to respond. You can see what it takes to make sure that we're able to to cope with a a pandemic of this nature. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, I want to come back to you now. Who is or has been your greatest influence in your life around doing good? I think on on a personal level, it's probably my dad who... As I said, he was a school principal. He was also a, a coach of footy teams, so Aussie Wills teams as I grew up. And uh, it's only as I got a bit older that I reflected back on my childhood and realised how lucky I was to have a dad and my mum too, but parents who were both so connected to their community in an altruistic way, so as teachers and coaches of children. And that's really an important facet of what shaped me as a, as a young person, I think. Professionally, I had two bosses in politics, both very different, but both very 
influential and inspirational in their own ways. The first was Natasha Stop Despoir, the former leader of the Democrats, and and she's now Australia's representation on the Committee to Eliminate Discrimination Against Women. She's just a wonderful human being, a very globally minded and altruistic by nature, and nothing is too much to ask of her. She's one of those amazing people that she's ridiculously busy, but she just finds time to send you a gift when you have a baby or you know, something like that. Um, so she's just a brilliant person. And then I worked for Bill Shorten as his chief of staff for a number of years. And Bill's very different, but equally as formidable as a leader. And I think the, the thing I learned from Bill was he just has this determination to get things done and this ability not to take no for an answer when something seems too hard. And I went to work for him when he was a junior minister for disability and he pushed this idea of a national disability insurance scheme before it was a, really an idea or before it was a policy reform area. And, and he used to say to me, just you wait, they'll come asking for this when they've run out of good ideas, Matt, and we'll, we'll have this ready for them. And he was so right. Like he, he organised the disability sector like a union organiser would to say, you've got a campaign for this thing, get behind a common set of ideas and you will be powerful. He said, you're, you're numerous, but you're powerless because you're not united behind a common set of ideas. And I'm going to give you this idea. And if you're not unite behind it, it will happen. That was phenomenal. It was one of the biggest pieces of social policy reform since Medicare. And I have no doubt that it was in no small part due to his approach and leadership. So I took a lot from that and I take a lot from that in the way I work now at Save the Children, particularly on advocacy issues. Like we talked about the kids in our hole in Syria, which is a pretty unpopular topic in some circles. But this sort of inner belief that it's the right thing and if you believe in it and, and keep pursuing it, then you can make change. Yeah, that's really helped to shape the way I do things at the moment. Amazing. And the next one's a bit of a philosophical question. What would you think is the greatest social challenge of our time? And when I say that, I mean something that future generations long past us would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking as a society. Yeah, the one that uh, I usually go to, and I think is even more pertinent in this time, is around education and access to education. So we know at the moment because of COVID, there's you know, over a billion kids who are out of school, you know, not engaging remotely or at all in school. That's not just a trend in COVID. This happens all the time, usually due to crisis or conflict or poverty where families can't access education. And, you know, we, we know that education is life-changing and it shapes your entire existence, your career, your level of wealth, your impact on the world. And I think if we don't make access, continuity of education and return to education and schools out of this COVID thing our number one priority, then we are really missing a trick and we risk having a whole generation of young people who don't reach their full potential because they missed too much school or they, they didn't re-engage in school at all. And that's probably what I'm most focused on in, in my work life and also my personal life to make sure my kids stay engaged right now in their own way. But yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge we've got as a society at the moment. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we hear lots of things. I, I have two kids at home trying to homeschool as well, similar ages to yours. And, you know, we hear on one side, yes, they need to keep engaged. Yes, it's really important that they're doing work and still learning. And then on the other side, we have people saying, no, six months out of school, is fine. They'll catch up. And that might apply to some kids, but there's a hell of a lot of kids that it doesn't apply to even in Australia, let alone globally. Yeah, I think that's that's right. It, it might not matter if you have a child who's already super engaged in learning 
you're surrounded by a family who themselves benefited from an education and value the importance of an education. They're not drawn to alternative ways for their children to help meet the family income and needs. Um, they're not struggling with poverty or, or substance abuse or domestic violence or those kind of things. But for any child who any of those criteria may apply to, then I think time away from school, we know the evidence all over the world says time away from school means they may disengage from education and their life will be manifestly worse if they don't re-engage in school. It's proven and, and unarguable in my view to the contrary. So I think it's a critical need for us. I think schools in Australia are doing a great job at the moment of adapting. Teachers are working overtime to prepare lessons and online content and tutorials and those kind of things. But we're lucky compared to many countries who are dealing with this thing at the moment. So it's really important we get it right. Matt, if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? I would just want them to stand in the shoes of someone less fortunate than them for a period of time. I talked about the notion of proximity before and, you know, I feel lucky that I get to travel the world and go and see some amazing, inspiring and also very challenging things. And a lot of other people would never get that opportunity and therefore it's it's understandable that their perspective is shaped by the things they perceive around them. And I think if we could find a way of allowing people to stand in the shoes of others less fortunate than them for just a just a moment um, and they comprehend that a lot of us are very lucky and a lot of other people aren't, I think that would change the way we we think about our world and and the nature of uh, things like development and humanitarianism, the things like globalism, that would be the one thing I would want people just to live the day in someone else's shoes for a while. Absolutely. And so important right now in terms of how we respond going forward is, is to, you know, I guess, check our privilege to some extent. And yes, acknowledge that, you know, here in Australia and in our lives, things are really hard. Uh, and for a lot of the people around us, but what is it like for people who live this every day? Absolutely. So tell me about someone you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now and why? I mean, I think there's people doing good at a community level every day, which is just inspiring to me. You know, I when I logged on this morning, I got an email from my team in Papua New Guinea who'd done radio broadcasts in, in Pigeon uh, around coronavirus and, and washing hands and and you know it's being broadcast out to children in remote villages all around the country and you know the local staff who put that, that together they are doing amazing work and they are, they are changing lives so I get a lot of inspiration from that and I think at this sort of time you also look to political leaders and I and I worked in politics I'm a bit of a political tragic but you know I think our political leaders by and large have done a pretty good job here in Australia the federal government the states and territories are working collaboratively and well together I think Daniel Andrews has been probably a standout as far as state leaders go. I think he's been really clear and decisive and, and taken action and is, um, is getting respect of the community for that. So, yeah, that's just a couple of sort of top level and also community level uh, champions that I, that I see. And what about on the global stage in terms of politics? What are you, what are you thinking in terms of political leadership there? I can be a bit demoralising, can at the moment when you look to some contexts like the US and, and elsewhere. And, you know, things like challenging the funding for the WHO is really difficult. You know, if there's ever a time that the world needed an organisation like the WHO, even if it's not perfect, it's it's now. So 
yeah, I think I get a bit demoralised when I look at kind of the global level leadership. Yeah, and I think in Australia and our region, we've done reasonably well and we should just be proud that we've got kind of a system of government, a society that is, you know, uh, not too arrogant or, you know, resistant to change that we can adapt our way of life to this kind of crisis. You know, and whoever the political leaders might be, whatever party or, or you know, wherever your allegiances lie, I think at a time like this, it doesn't really matter. You just respect the role of government. Yes. Um, because we need governments in a crisis like this. And I think ours has been pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. So Matt, a couple of last questions. Where's your favourite place on earth? Yeah, um, we were talking about this in my house the other day. We lit a fire in our backyard for a bit of a weekend camping. Um, we did the and, same. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it made me think about camping. And my, my happy place is by the river. So I love going up to the Murray River camping on there and that kind of place. We have this debate about whether it's river or sea, and I'm definitely a river person. There's just something I find quite calming about being in the bush and you know against a, a flowing body of water so a fishing line you know yep. playing against a log in the murray that's probably my happy place nice nice and what books are you reading right now at the moment i'm reading dark emu by bruce pascoe it's a fascinating book really about challenging the conventional wisdom i guess that uh, indigenous australians were nomadic by nature and and going through quite a detailed list of evidence and history around their homes, their solid home structures, their uh, use of agriculture and cropping and producing flour, um, you know, fish traps, um, all these sort of things to say, look, this this notion that the Aboriginals were nomadic and therefore uh, they didn't have a, a sophisticated and robust society is just nonsense, really. If you care to examine the facts, it's manifestly untrue. And actually, the chapter I'm just reading now is about their use of fire as a a land management tool and this was all written pre you know big bushfires this year in australia and it's so obvious that we had a, a culture that used fire to manage the land for you know sixty thousand years yet we've really learned nothing from their their land management techniques so yeah it's a fascinating read and really interesting to sort of remove myself from the daily grind to think about those kind of things yeah yeah absolutely well matt i'm sure you are very busy uh and i want to thank you for taking the time out to record this with me uh, i know it's a stressful time within save the children and, and in everyone's life so i really appreciate you taking that time and sharing your thoughts with us no worries lady very welcome thank you thanks for listening to the good problem podcast if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.